This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So I'm going to go through a, several arguments here real quickly. Um, evidence of the universe, where I mean by that space, time, and, and matter, uh, had a supernatural cause. So I'm going to talk about two philosophical arguments, argument inspired by St. Thomas, Thomistic argument, and then a Kalam argument uh, inspired by a different tradition that comes to us from the ancient and medieval worlds. Uh, then briefly talk about uh, scientific evidence for a supernatural cause, uh, the Big Bang and the fine tuning of our universe. And at the very end, if time permits, I'll talk a little bit about science as, to, as an argument for God's existence. The very possibility of science, I think, points to God. So that'll be the third part of this, if we, if we get there. Uh, and then this is just a little bibliography for the talk. Um, it's gonna be based, well really, what I'm gonna talk about today will be based mostly on the first two ways of St. Thomas's uh, work uh, in the Summa Theologica. And uh, you should also check out his longer Summa Contra Gentiles. Uh, and then in terms of more recent work, um, I'd point you to uh, work by Alexander Proust, Fred Demina Baylor, He's written an important book uh, 10 years ago called The Principle of Sufficient Reason. And then more recently, Proust and Joshua S. Moosen written a book on necessary existence. And then uh, there's some work of my own, which includes the uh, new Kalam argument from 2013. And then very recently with Alex Bruce, uh, the principle of sufficient reason and skepticism in Phil studies in, in this year, 2020. So the first argument, philosophical argument I'm talking about, the Thomistic argument, has a very long history actually. Um, it's accepted by philosophers from at least six great traditions, ancient pagan, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Indian and early modern European uh, traditions. It's been developing over 2,500 years and it's an area of, of very active research among philosophers uh, right up to the present day. So I'm gonna start with questions of knowledge. So what do we know and how do we know it, basically? Uh, if you hold up your right hand right now, spread out your fingers, question is, do you know there's a hand with five fingers in front of you right now? And if so, I'm gonna argue you can also know that God exists. So if you're an absolute skeptic and you don't think you can know anything at all, including the fact that you have a hand in front of you, then the argument won't get started. But on the other hand, if you are willing to grant me some knowledge of the empirical world, what we call empirical knowledge, uh, then the argument can get started. So empirical knowledge includes things like observation, I just mentioned, using our five senses, uh, memory, remembering what we have observed in the past, uh, things we know by the testimony of others, and then things we can know by inference, by scientific or historical reasoning from the first three sorts of things. Um, so all empirical knowledge depends on causality, on cause and effect. When we know something empirically, our belief is linked by a chain of cause and effect of the thing that we know. And so it's sort of obvious when you think about sensory perception, right? There's a, a chain of cause and effect from the light reflecting on the surface, passing into our eyes, stimulating the retina, optic nerve, and so on. Uh, memory also involves a chain of cause and effect in the brain, presumably recording and then recalling some memory trace. Testimony, of course, is, is, is passed down by a chain of communication events, which are causal in nature, somebody communicating something to someone else. And all of our scientific and historical reasoning involves incur inferring causes from effects or effects from causes. So all of that reasoning really presupposes the validity of causation in some sense. So if any of these links in this causal chain could occur without a cause, 
then knowledge would be impossible. So if it were possible for light to simply appear in a vacuum without any cause whatsoever and stimulate my eye, or if it were possible for my eye just to be stimulated again without any cause, or the brain to go in a particular state without cause, then it'd be possible for me to have the very same experience I'm having now, the very same memories and, and uh, parent testimony and so on, and yet not to know anything at all. So, so there's, a, there's a principle here of causation, a principle that everything in the empirical world is caused, that underlies all of our knowledge. Now, does absolutely everything have a cause? Well, everything that's involved is a link in the chain of empirical knowledge must have a cause. So again, if sensations could occur without any cause whatsoever, then it would be possible at any time for those sensations to occur without a cause, just for no reason, just to appear suddenly. And if that were possible, this would happen with a completely unpredictable and inscrutable probability. Probabilities are values we give to things based on their causes. Right? So if there's a probability of the, head, of the coin coming up heads, that's one half, based on the causal processes that produce a coin tossing. If things could happen without a cause, then they would have no probability either. And so then we have good reason to think that we might be Boltzmann brains. Uh, that is, this is a technical term which we can talk about later, uh, that is a brain with nothing but illusory sensations. We have to take that seriously as a possibility if causation were limited in its scope. And the universal, universality of causation must be self-evident. So suppose we did have some empirical knowledge. So again, remember the five fingers. Suppose you know that you have the five fingers. But we've seen that such knowledge is impossible unless we can know that every step involved necessarily has a cause. Well, we can't know that empirically without a vicious circularity, right? Because all empirical knowledge depends on this presupposition of causation. So you can't know, you can't verify causation empirically. You must know it a priori. It must be a kind of self-evident truth of reason, a, pr a principle of reason itself. Um, so there's only one sort of thing that could fail to be caused without threatening our empirical knowledge. Things that are obviously uncausable. And not just uncaused, but self-evidently uncausable. So uncausable things could occur without a cause, right? Because like, obviously they can't be caused. And they aren't the sort of thing that we, we encountered in our experience. And they aren't the sort of things that form part of our links, one of the links in our, in our network of empirical causation. So let's, uh, let's say that something is natural, just in case it isn't obviously uncausable. Then I think reason tells us with certainty that every natural thing must have a cause. That's, what, that's what's presupposed by all of our knowledge. Um, now, if that's true, we should go back, then it follows very quickly, there's a supernatural cause of the natural world. Because the whole natural world is not obviously uncausable, right? It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a sum of, of natural things. And so the universe will have to have a cause, and that universe will have to be a supernatural cause, something that's obviously uncausable. So I'll explain a little bit later why I think that's going to be, going to be God. Uh, but now let me move to the second philosophical argument. This is the Kalam argument, another argument for saying that the universe has to have a cause and therefore a supernatural cause. The Kalam argument goes something like this. The universe, the totality of things in time, or the things that have causes, uh, had a beginning, a beginning in time. Everything that had a beginning had a cause, therefore the universe as a whole had a cause. Um, now, Thomas Aquinas uh, and, and people who follow Aristotle closely think this argument doesn't really work. Uh, that in particular, they challenge the first premise that the universe necessarily had a beginning. Uh, and for a long time, I thought they were right, but now I think there's actually a good argument for thinking it did have a beginning. Now, of course, Aquinas believed it had a beginning, 
based on faith, based on the, on the Bible and, and the church teaching. But he thought that philosophically he couldn't prove it had a beginning. Um, many Christians have disagreed with, with Aquinas on this point, including Bonaventure. And I now think that um, Aquinas may have been wrong. And my reason for this is based on some very recent work by a philosopher at um, Syracuse, Jose Benedetti. I believe he's still alive, he's in his 90s. Uh, but he wrote a book in 1964 called Infinity, an essay in metaphysics. And he introduces there a number of interesting puzzles, but I'm gonna talk about one particular puzzle called the Grim Reaper Paradox. There's a little picture of death, the Grim Reaper. Uh, you know, in Bernadetti's original puzzle, you have an infinite number of Grim Reapers, each of whom is going to kill a particular victim called Fred. And uh, they're all packed within a particular time frame between midnight and one minute after midnight. Okay. And each of the Grim Reapers has a deadline. Excuse the pun. And so if, if Fred is still alive at the deadline of a Grim Reaper, then the Grim Reaper will kill him at that time. If he's already dead, the Grim Reaper will do nothing. Okay. So here's how they're arranged. Grim Reaper number one has the very latest deadline, 1201, whole minute after midnight. If Fred somehow survives until 12.01, Grim Reaper number one, the one on the right here, will kill him. Grim Reaper two has an earlier deadline, 30 seconds after midnight. If he survives 30 seconds, Grim Reaper two will kill him. And of course, if two kills him, one won't kill him. Uh, three has a deadline that's earlier still, 15 seconds after midnight. Again, if he's still alive at 15 seconds after it, Grim Reaper three will kill him. And then of course, two and one won't, and so on. So there's an infinite number of Grim Reapers with deadlines that are closer and closer to midnight. And of course, the problem is Fred can certainly not survive this, right? There's an infinite number of Grim Reapers determined to kill him. There's no way he survives a whole minute. But which Grim Reaper kills him? You could very quickly get a contradiction. If you say it's Grim Reaper number n, and that means he somehow survived n plus one, n plus two, n plus three, and so on, an infinite number of Grim Reapers with an earlier deadline. And that seems to be impossible. But of course, if he's gonna be killed by somebody, he has to be killed by some particular number n, and we get a contradiction. Now, how does this work with the Kalam argument? Well, in the Kalam argument, what I'm gonna do is uh, get rid of Fred and the victim. So this is actually sort of a bloodless version of the paradox. Uh, instead, we have Grim Reapers going all the way back in time. So Grim Reaper number one is assigned one BC, two is two BC, three is three BC, and so on, ad infinitum. And each, each Grim Reaper has a very simple task. He writes down a death warrant for Fred, if and only if no preceding Grim Reaper has already done so. So if there's no death warrant written until 1 BC, then Grim Reaper 1 will write it at 1 BC. On the other hand, if none is written before 2 BC, then Grim Reaper 2 will write it at 2 BC, and then 1 won't have to. Or if 3 does it, then 2 and 1 won't have to, and so on. And again, we can ask ourselves, which Grim Reaper writes the, writes the, uh, Grim, the, the death warrant? And the answer is, well, somebody has to. Because if nobody else does, Grim Reaper 1 will certainly do it. But if I say it's Grim Reaper number N, I quickly get a contradiction again, because if Grim Reaper N does it, that means that nobody before N did it. That means N plus one didn't do it, but N plus one would have done it if nobody else had done it earlier still. And so you get it immediately a contradiction. So, um, so that's what I just said. So um, when we get a contradiction in this way, we get what in philosophy we call reductio ad absurdum. That is, we derive a contradiction from certain assumptions. And if the contradiction follows logically from those assumptions, then the, one of the assumptions has to be false. Now, in this particular case, we've assumed that an infinite regress of time is possible. That is, the universe might not have had a beginning at all. And we've seen that the Grim Reaper story is self-contradictory. 
Therefore, the conclusion we should reach is that an infinite causal regress is impossible, or, or more concretely, that time itself has to have a beginning. And if time itself has to have a beginning, then the universe had to have a beginning. If the universe had a beginning, then there had to be, a, again, a supernatural cause of the universe. Um, there's another argument for a first cause. Um, so this is, in a way, a third argument. Even if infinite regresses were possible, they would still have to have a cause. So you could let the cosmos be the sum of all the natural facts. And even if the cosmos includes infinite regresses, it's going to have to have a cause. And that cause will have to be separate from the universe, from the cosmos. And so the, this cosmos will have to be a necessary, an infinite being. Now, this is an argument that uh, actually find in, I should say, Ibn Sina, Duns Scotus, and Gottfried Lagnitz. Okay, so, um, so if the network of causation contains no loops and no infinite regresses, then there must be at least one uncaused or first cause. However, we've seen that empirical knowledge requires that every natural thing must have a cause. So the first cause must be ultimate in some sense. It must be obviously incapable of being evidence for anything else. It has to be obviously uncausable, and therefore I'm going to argue supernatural. Now, what do these ultimate things have to be like? Well, what characterizes all the causable things? That is the things that we perceive or remember, the things that are intermediate between perceptions and objects, the sort of things that can be used as scientific data. Well, they're all obviously variable and constant and changing. So an uncausable or ultimate thing, a first cause, must be invariant, constant, and unchangeable in its very nature. So the chain of argument goes something like this, that an uncausable being will have to be infinite, and an infinite being will have to be a being of absolute existence. And this will get us to the traditional Thomistic conception of God. So from the first cause to absolute being, to be uncaused and uncausable, the first cause must be necessary, constant, and invariant. In order to be necessary, the first cause must be infinite in every respect, because what is finite is variable and also causable. So in order to be necessary in itself, the first cause must be simple or absolute existence. Since if it were not, it would be limited or bounded in some way, and so it would be finite. So there, there can be only one thing that's identical to absolute existence, because if there were two, they'd be identical to each other, and that would be a contradiction. So this being must have all possible power, so it has to be the cause of all possible beings. In order to have all possible power, it would have to have all the positive attributes to their absolute maximum degree. It would have to have perfect knowledge, perfect wisdom, perfect goodness, and so on. Because if it lacked any of those perfections, it wouldn't be absolutely powerful. So those, those are the philosophical arguments. So um, I rushed through that in, what, uh, 20 minutes or so. Uh, and obviously, there's uh, a lot to unpack there. But just to um, give you a little variety, let me talk about the scientific evidence for a first cause as well. In the 1930s, it was a Belgian priest, uh, Lemaitre, who first discovered that Einstein's theory of general, general relativity entailed that the universe had a beginning. And this was fiercely resisted at first by most astronomers, including Einstein himself. Uh, there's a book by Robert Jaster that goes into this in some detail. They rejected it because it was too theological. They, they were worried that it sounded too much like Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But then Edwin Hubble in the 50s, 40s and 50s, discovered the redshift of distant galaxies. And this was confirmed in the 60s by the observation of the cosmic background radiation. So now almost all scientists agree that time, space, and matter began to exist 13.7 billion years ago, or 14 billion years ago. And of course, as we've seen, what begins to exist has a cause, so it seems that the universe itself has to have a cause. Now, in recent years, some physicists have proposed theories of pre-Big Bang era in infinite inflation or various string and brain theories. 
Uh, and so you might say, you know, there's ways here to resist this conclusion scientifically and say, no, the universe didn't really completely begin at the Big Bang. There was a pre-Big Bang period. But there was an interesting theorem in 2003 by Borda, Guth, and Vilenkin that showed that every inflationary model universe, with or without a multiverse, must have some beginning in time. So even if it isn't 14 billion years ago, maybe it was 14 trillion years ago, at some point there has to be a beginning to the physical universe. Now we can also infer, I think, that the first cause is infinitely wise and personal by examining the creation, by examining the effect of the first cause. And the creation is obviously organized for certain purposes. It obeys simple universal laws. It permits the origin and development of life. It contains human beings who have a capacity for universal knowledge. And all these things are required designing, required intentional purpose on, on the first causes part. Um, first of all, there's, there's two things I'll mention here in terms of evidence of design. One is just the fact that the universe has simple, elegant laws of nature. That itself is quite remarkable and points to a mind behind nature. And many scientists think this way. But secondly, more recently, we see what's called anthropic fine-tuning. What this means is that the constants of nature, the ratios of fundamental forces and other sort of fundamental constants, have been adjusted to permit the formation of carbon, planets, stars, and ultimately life itself. Um, there's an evidence, some work on the evidence of design for the Earth itself by uh, Guillermo Gonzalez and uh, J. Wesley Richards in a book called The Privileged Planet, which I recommend. Uh, they demonstrate that the Earth seems to have been very specially designed to be an ideal astronomical, physical, chemical laboratory for scientific discovery. Um, we've also discovered that the origin of life happened with extreme rapidity on the Earth. It was within, within a few million years of the formation of liquid water, which is like a blink of the eye in geological terms. And we also discovered that, that life is based on a DNA code that is so intricate and so well built that it couldn't have been formed by chance. But I'm going to pass over those real quickly and talk about these anthropic coincidences in, in the fundamental laws of nature here for a bit. I'm going to go through seven of them real quickly. There's at least 40 of them that are known now, and I think there's much more than that. Uh, the first one has to do with the strong nuclear force and its ratio of its force to the other forces like uh, electromagnetic force. If the strong nuclear force were just 5% weaker, you'd get no deuterium formed at the Big Bang, and that means you'd get no stars. If it were 50% weaker, all the elements would be unstable. Um, and then there's a lot of other problems if it's too strong, which I won't go into. Uh, the anthropic question number two has to do with the cosmological constant. This is something that causes the universe to expand very rapidly at the beginning. And it has to be very, very close to zero, but still positive. Uh, and by very close to zero, I mean something like 10 to the minus 50th power. So 0 0.00050 zeros to one. Uh, if the cosmological constant is too strong, inflation proceeds too far, leading to a diffuse cloud of hydrogen. No stars, no planets, no chemistry, no life. If it's too weak, inflation can't take place at all, leading to a very lumpy, non-uniform cosmos, creating lots of black holes, and again, no stars, no galaxies, no life. Uh, thirdly, the electric neutrality of the universe. The number of protons and electrons have to agree with each other within a factor of 10 to the 37th power. Otherwise, electric repulsion or attraction, mostly, most likely repulsion, would overwhelm gravity, preventing, again, the formation of galaxies, stars, and planets, and no life again. Uh, fourthly, this was actually the first thing discovered by uh, an astronomer who's actually an atheist, Fred Hoyle, uh, that there's a coordination of some atomic resonance levels in carbon. If the third level had been just one half of 1% higher, 
than it is, no carbon would have been produced. And so as Hoyle said, it looks as though somebody has been monkeying with physics in order to make carbon possible. And of course, carbon is necessary for life. It's the basis of all organic chemistry. Fifth one, electromagnetic force compared to gravity now. If this force was too weak, all the stars would be very short-lived. Uh, and again, the factor here is the gravity is actually extremely weak compared to electromagnetic force. It's 10 to the 39th power to one. It's an extreme, extremely weak force. If it were just 3,000 times greater, you'd have no long-lived stars. Uh, so that's quite remarkable. Uh, number six, very interesting facts about visible light. It has just the right levels to interact usefully with chemical reactions. So it makes possible vision and photosynthesis. If it were just slightly stronger, it would pass through matter like radio and microwaves too much, and it would destroy compounds like x-rays. So it's a very, very tiny bit of the whole spectrum. And yet it's what is produced in abundance by sunlight stars, in fact, by, by most stars. Uh, so all the star, all the light being produced, electromagnetic radiation being produced by stars is focused in this very tiny range, which is exactly what's needed for life. Uh, seventh, this is I think, most impressive mathematically. The universe began in a state of extremely low entropy which means a state of that was very, very highly ordered in a certain sense, very smooth and, and regular. Uh, and, and that means it, it, it starts in a state of a very, very low probability in a certain technical sense. Uh, Roger Penrose, who just recently won the Nobel Prize in Physics, has written about this. And he said it takes one in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd power. So that's a number with more zeros in it than there are atoms in the universe. That's how big a number it is. That's how unlikely the Big Bang would be by chance. And so again, you need something like an intelligent creator to produce a universe in that kind of state. So just to summarize the lecture so far, we have the convergence of arguments for the conclusion that the universe has a supernatural cause. From metaphysics, we have these two or three first cause arguments. From physics, we have the Big Bang and fine tuning. And together, the, both are stronger than either would be separately. Physics, I think, makes God existence probable and metaphysics then makes it certain. And then finally, the last point I'm going to talk about today has to do with the um, scientific evidence for God as science itself. So every new scientific discovery confirms the existence of God because science itself points to God's existence. Um, without the faith in the, in the rational intelligibility of the world and the divine vocation of human beings to master the world, modern science would never have been possible. There's a number of, of historians and scientists and philosophers who've noticed this. Uh, Alfred North Whitehead, very famous uh, philosopher at Harvard uh, in his book, Science in the Modern World. Joseph Needham was a great scholar, mostly of, of Chinese thought uh, in the Great Tritration. And there are many others who pointed out, it's quite remarkable that modern science, that is in the sense of uh, the modern mathematical physics and chemistry that we associate with people like Kepler and Newton and Doyle and so on, with Boyle, uh, that that started in a Christian milieu, started in medieval and late medieval and very early modern uh, Europe and, and Mediterranean. Uh, why there? Why not in China? Why not in India? Why not in the Mayan civilization? Why not in some other great civilization? And the answer seems to be theological, that Christians brought to the study of the world a faith in the intelligibility of the world and a faith in human beings as God, in God's image and therefore able to make sense of the world. So the first theological precondition is belief in the intelligibility of the universe as the artifact of a perfect mind 
working with suitable material that it itself created, its mind it created. And this is closely connected with the Hebraic conception of God as a lawgiver. In fact, the, the whole idea of a law of nature that we were so familiar with now was actually introduced by the Christian theologian Basil of Caesarea in the fourth century in his book called The Six Days. So God legislates an, a mathematical order to the universe and that, that makes the universe intelligible to us. But secondly, a belief in the fitness of the human mind created in the image of God to the task of science, conceived of as a vocation given by God. So as Christians, we believe that we're in the image of God and that we were given a commission to, uh, to supervise nature, so to speak. And that presupposes that we can understand nature enough to exercise that kind of supervisory role. And so this is why all of the early scientists, and you see this if you read their, their work, they approached their scientific studies with a confidence that was based on their Christian faith, based on their conviction that God had made the world in a rational way and that he'd given them the ability to understand what he'd made. Um, again, I, I was recently, well, actually a few years ago, I was at the, uh, in Sweden, I was visiting Linnaeus's uh, uh, workshop. Linnaeus is one of the great pioneers of biology. And when you read his, uh, his laboratory notebooks, they had translations, so I don't read Swedish. Uh, but every page was full of uh, doxologies to God and how wonderful God was, and what a beautiful universe he created, and how wonderful it was he enabled us to understand it. And this is very typical of early modern scientists in general. Um, one more thing, um, I'll skip over that for a minute. Let me go to Alvin Plantinga. Um, so Alvin Plantinga is one of the great philosophers of the 20th century, a Christian, and um, he wrote a book a few years back called Where the Conflict Really Lies, Science, Religion, and Naturalism. And I really think this is the best book that's ever been written on science and religion. So if you haven't read it yet, you should run out and buy a copy. Uh, and I'm gonna summarize real quickly an argument that Plantinga makes here and in, in some of his other works as well, that shows that it's not just a historical fact that science depends on Christianity. There's a philosophical argument for, that shows that it was necessary that in order for science to be possible, there had to be something very like the Christian God, a rational, benevolent God behind the universe. Uh, in chapter 10, he demonstrates, planning demonstrates the materialism without a designer who intended man to be equipped with an aptitude for truth leads inexorably to a catastrophe, the defeat of the materialist's aspiration for knowledge. And uh, you know, it's because natural selection, evolution, doesn't care about whether we can do science. Right? It doesn't matter, it doesn't care whether we can get the laws of nature right. It only cares about how well our ancestors could survive you know, on, the, on the plains of Africa you know, a million years ago. Evolution pretty much finished its job then as far as developing the human brain. So, um, so therefore, we had, if materialism is true, there's no God, we would have zero confidence that our brains were equipped to understand the natural world around us. And uh, we'd have to think that anything we believe about the natural world is unreliable. And this, this would undermine any kind of scientific knowledge. Now, conversely, um, uh, so lacking any explanation for our reliability, other than dumb luck, the materialist occupies a position, position that's untenable for the purposes of asserting claims to scientific knowledge. They really can't claim to, to have, to believe in science. Whereas, um, so, so therefore science, materialism, the philosophy of materialism, can draw no support whatsoever from modern science since scientific realism itself entails that materialism is false. If scientific theories are treated merely as useful fictions that evolution has foisted on us, science would have no bearing at all on the truth or falsity of materialism. So I'm trying to pull a little jujitsu here on the many scientifically minded atheists out there and think, 
that materialism does draw its support from science. I want to say exactly the opposite of this is the case. Materialism is completely undermined by science and vice versa. And if you want to make sense of science, you have to be a theist. Theists can point to the success of science as the confirmation of their metaphysical position, the verification of a daring prediction made by theists hundreds of years ago, because theists can explain why we are able to understand nature, because it was made by a rational God who gave us, who created us in his image and gave us the vocation of understanding the world that he created. So summing up, um, belief in God is confirmed both by philosophical argument and by scientific evidence. And theism is a practical presupposition of science itself. All scientific success confirms the truth of, of Christian theism. All right, so let's go ahead and uh, go back to the Zoom camera here for a bit. And uh, that's uh, my, let's see, there we go, good. So we've got, I think, plenty of time for uh, questions, right? Um, and uh, discussion, so hopefully I've thrown a few ideas out there for you to react to. Um, so I guess just to like start with the first um, cosmological argument, um, I recognize the similarity of the Grim Reaper um, example and the Grand Hotel paradox. I see the similarity. Yes. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> and actually, I'm glad that someone's already mentioned Hume because my questions might have a bit of a Humean flavor to them. Um, okay. So early on, you mentioned that belief is linked to a causal series of events, particularly like empirical knowledge. Um, yeah. But like empirical knowledge is not the only kind of knowledge that we have. We also have a priori knowledge. Like we can apply right. logical truths to propositions. Um, and obviously, causality is a form of inductive reasoning, not a form of deductive reasoning. And right. so you wrote down at one point that you said that without knowledge of each causal step, we could not claim to possess such knowledge. Um, and well, I, I right. guess my problem is that, not, not, not my problem. Like, what's yeah. that? I was going to say that I was, I was talking about empirical knowledge in that, in that slide. Yeah. Right, right. I yeah. guess my question is that there might be, it feels like there might be an issue of a, um, a fallacy of composition here. And that like we can apply a priori knowledge to things like, um, I'm trying to think of examples on the spot here, but you're familiar with the fallacy composition or the, comp sure, <laughs> the, comp sure. yeah. the fallacy of composition. Um, like because yeah, it's a very common objection. Yeah. Yeah, because we can't apply like an empirical account or like investigation to the origin of the universe, it might yeah. be fallacious to say that because everything within the universe has a particular cause that yeah. we can apply that same logic to the universe. And it right. also seems like there might be a, I guess like a special pleading case that like such an entity which created the universe is exempt from having a cause, but like, right. why can't we just say that about the universe itself? You know, how do right. we know that the universe is not just in that same, doesn't have that same characteristic. Does right. that make sense? <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so let's, let me take both of them. So they're they're related, obviously. But uh, let's start with the fallacy of composition kind of arguments or objection. So, um, yeah. So the idea is that um, we can reasonably say that each small part of the universe, let's say, has to have a cause, like my current sensations or something like that. But then when I apply that to the whole universe. Uh, I'm, I'm engaged in the fallacy of composition. I'm assuming that because something's true of every part of the whole, it therefore must also be true of the whole. That's obviously wrong, right? So every thing in the zoo is alive, that doesn't make the whole zoo alive, right? It's a, it's a sum of individual things. Right, so the thing I point out is, well, I mean, first of all, of course, composition is not always a fallacy, right? If I have a bunch of wooden things on my desk, 
and I piled them all together and together, I've now got a big wooden thing on my desk. And therefore, it's also in many cases, holes do inherit the properties of their parts. And so the interesting question here is whether that's true about the universe and what's, what's the characteristic that's important here. So our argument in infill studies was that um, we have to have a very powerful principle causality in our back pocket, so to speak, if we're going to be able to take any sort of experience we have, memory we have, scientific data we collect, and be able to assume that those things have a cause. And so the question is, what's the common denominator here to all the things that we have to apply causality to? And the answer is, well, the common denominator is simply that they are uh, causable. They're in principle causable. They're, uh, they're, they're finite in some respect or contingent in some respect. There's another, these are other terms that people use. That is contingent meaning they don't have to exist the way they do. They could have existed in a different way or not existed at all. So now the question is, is that true of the whole universe? Where by the universe, I don't mean all of reality. I mean the totality of natural things, the totality of contingent, variable, finite things. Is it also going to be contingent um, in some sense or natural in some sense? And I think the answer is pretty clearly yes, right? I mean, if you put together a bunch of, of uh, contingent things, you end up with something that's even more contingent than all the parts. You actually increase the contingency when you add them together. You don't eliminate the contingency. Uh, likewise, if you, if you put together a bunch of composite things, you get something that's even more composite than you started with, right? Not, you, don't, you don't work your way towards simplicity by adding more things to the pile, right? Quite the opposite, it becomes more complex. And so in these kinds of cases, in fact, the causal principle will apply not only also to the, to the whole universe, but especially to the whole universe. So it's especially apt for the, for the principle of causality to be applied to the whole of, of the natural world. And that therefore does give you a first cause. Now, the next, next step you made, next objection you made is, wait a minute, uh, isn't there this kind of special pleading? Why are you making exemption for God? If everything has to have a cause, right? Why doesn't that apply to God as well? Well, of course, I never said that absolutely everything had a cause, right? Uh, and that would lead to a contradiction, right? Because uh, if everything had a cause, then the whole totality of reality would have a cause. But its cause would have to be something unreal outside of reality. But unreal things don't cause anything. So that would very quickly lead to a contradiction. So the, the causal principle does not, cannot say that absolutely everything has a cause. It has to say everything that's causable has a cause. And so God will be, by definition, the uncausable thing, right? So it's not special pleading. It's quite the opposite. It's reaching a conclusion and then unpacking that conclusion. The argument points us to an uncausable being right, as the first cause, and then we can ask, well, what is an uncausable being going to be like? Well, it's not going to be like the universe. It's going to be really, really simple. It's going to be infinite. It's going to be necessary, right? It's going to have all kinds of characteristics that the universe doesn't have. So that's, anyway, that's the uh, simple version of the response to those very, very interesting objections. Thank you for the lecture. I guess my question kind of jumps off of what Mark was asking two questions ago. So in your metaphysical arguments, you argued for God's existence and for God being powerful. And then you, in the question period, you argued for him being simple. I guess one objection I hear brought up is that an all-powerful God doesn't necessarily mean an all-good God could be a powerful but bad God. So how would you respond to those who say um, that these metaphysical arguments that we've put forward so far don't necessarily mean he's all good? Yeah, good. So it's a really interesting question. Um, and um, it's not something that... Uh, that people have not thought about for a long time. So I've got, you know, there's a lot of arguments that I could give here. And I'll try to give what I think is the most important one. 
Um, so if God is going to be an absolutely simple being, then that means that he can't have any special biases one way or the other, or character quirks or, or uh, uh, limitations of any kind in his motivation, right? Uh, because that would introduce an element of finitude and, and even of contingency and causability to God. What caused God to have this quirk? What caused God to have these biases, right, in motivation? So God must somehow act in a way that is um, intrinsically simple, right? But what would that be like? Well, the only thing that any of us can think of is that God would be a being that responds simply to the value of things themselves, right? So he creates a world simply because it's a good world to create. That's it. Uh, and that doesn't require any kind of complexity or, or, or bias within God. It's the, the complexity is entirely on the level of the creation. The creation has to be, have a certain kind of complexity in order to be good, and God makes it simply because it's good. And so God has the simplest possible motivation to do what he does, namely, it's good to do, period. Uh, and so um, if, if you sit and, and to be to be bad, God would have to have some other motivation, right? He has to do things not because they're good, but because he was jealous that to do harm to somebody or something else. And so you'd, you'd have to introduce some further motivations into God in order to make him bad. But he can't have any such further motivations, right? He has to be simple. And simplicity in this regard implies goodness. So that's the, that's the simple argument, I think. I think it's, it's what I find most persuasive, I guess. I mean, can I also say real briefly, uh, there's this related idea, which is the so-called privation theory of evil, which Augustine talks about quite a bit. He gets it actually from the Neoplatonists. Um, the idea is that evil is always the lack of something good, all evil. Vice is the lack of virtue. Ignorance is the lack of knowledge. Hatred is a certain lack of love. And since God has no lacks, no privations, uh, he's going to automatically be good. He can't possibly be evil. So that's a kind of related argument that supports the same conclusion. Uh, thank you for this uh, lecture. I had a really nice time. Um, I was wondering if I could ask multiple questions. Sure. Uh, yeah, awesome. So uh, I, I wrote down a few notes as well. And um, it seems that uh, empirical knowledge Mm, yeah, we get it through observations, memory, inferences, testimony, and we also get it through experiments, which can, um, which can um, somehow strengthen certain uh, things, which can rule out the bad uh, answers, mm -hmm. and which can extend uh, our senses. So what I see with my eyes, I can see more with the microscopes and so on and so forth. Um, right. And you further say that, yeah, all of this stuff is like causal. Uh, which means that uh, there is uh, there there is a cause to uh, all of these things, but I would argue that not everything is like causal like that. For example, there are certain examples uh, which modern physics can give us, which um, is not causal in that uh, in this particular fashion. So one example is like the simplest spring in quantum mechanics. Uh, it's zero energy mode. It's least energy mode. It is moving. All right, so there's no unmoved, there's no cause required. It is moving by the very fact that it, it is moving. Yeah. Um, so you might argue that, okay, so here the cause of the movement is because this spring exists. Uh, right. But then I would go further. I would say that um, space and time itself, like um, we don't know much about what that is. But like if, if you look at just blank space and time, there's always going to be a quantum field. 
and this quantum field will also have fluctuations. It's also going to be moving without any cause per se. And then you're going to ask that, okay, the, the cause is going to be the quantum field. Exactly. Uh, but but, Read but my then, mind. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> but, but then I'm going to say, um, it's not just the quantum field because the quantum field, we can inquire about its fluctuations because of a measurement, which we do. So uh, yeah. the, the, the very act of movement, which is happening, it is unnoticed. It is, uh, and we have to do an experiment. So we have to do something causal to figure out that which is, seems like causal. So there, there's one thing over there. And then also light, right? So light, if you're in the, if you imagine that you're uh, in a bus, which is traveling at the speed of light, uh, you will see that there's no time uh, for you. There's nothing like that. So there's no time. There's no causation as such. I wouldn't know what that looks like, but light would know. Um, so, so what I'm trying to get at is that this, this entire thing about causation is a very human-centric argument. Uh, and and uh, this is the this is the issue. So like um, even Kalam, right? Like so, Kalam he had this like uh, uh, argument about uh, the universe at the beginning, which uh, he in, was inspired by his own tradition, and um, it, that is problematic because like most physicists do not agree that like the universe had a beginning. They agree that it is not known what happens at t equal to zero, right? So even, even uh, this, um, even Roger Penrose, uh, who you mentioned, he is now working with something like a cyclical universe. And that would entail that the universe never had a beginning. And this is all science and it's evidence-based and it all keeps on increasing. So, so, so all of these arguments that we have set on the table is going from A to B using rational arguments testimonies, logic, et cetera, et cetera, which is going from, you know, taking one step at a, at a time. But by definition, all these step arguments cannot lead to that which is God, which is, which is beyond, uh, you know, space and time. So I, I do not know, um, and, and, and the arguments about like um, uh, science, the, the various anthropic coincidences you know, like if those coincidences did not occur, then it's very much possible that some other form of life could have occurred or nothing could have occurred. If the anthropic coincidences, it does not stop a meteorite to come and destroy the earth and destroy all life. So I, I do not know uh, whether that's, that's very good. And, and then of course, like, the un, uh, like God is uncaused and only the uncaused can happen without a cause. So an elephant coming in this room right now, you know, that's uncausable. Yeah, uncausable. Yeah. Uncausable. Yes, uncausable. Uh, the, the elephant no, just... Elephants aren't uncausable. We know that, right? The elephant just appearing in the room right now, that's something which is absurd. It is uncausable. Yeah. You, cannot, right. you cannot like do a set of like uh, mathematical or physical movements which would re uh, require the elephant to suddenly pop out of existence here without no information going wherever. So that is something which is uncausable, but that should happen without a cause. So this is my question then, like take out the human aspect. How does one argue about God? Like, because I'm a believer, right? Like I'm not a believer. I would say that I'm not a believer. I'm a 
knower, but whatever that means. But uh, because belief is something like you can tell me that you know believe that like there is this this book is red in color or something. I can believe it does not mean that it's true. So how does one argue about truth beyond the human conditionings? Right. Great questions. Yeah, exactly. Maybe I'll start with the last one. Um, so one thing I think we need to realize is that we can't think about the world except in human terms, right? Because we're human beings. So to say, okay, I want you to prove God's existence, but I don't want you to think humanly. I want you to think inhumanly in the process. Then I think you're asking for the impossible, right? So then the question is, well, so if that's true, then shouldn't we just give up and say, well, I'm not going to even think about anything because I can only think about it as a human being. And, and why should I think that human thought has any relationship to reality? Um, and the answer is, well, because I'm a theist. I actually think it does. <laughs> I think that God created us in his image. To think humanly about the world is exactly to be able to think God's thoughts after him. And so the, the, the Christian theism is a great license for science. It's a great mandate. Uh, it's, the, uh, it's the foundation, really, for sci all scientific inquiry. And a lot of scientists don't understand that because they, they'll, they'll, they'll speak out of both sides of the mouth, right? Science is wonderful and it's shown why we don't need God. And also science is completely worthless because we're human beings and therefore we can't understand anything. Uh, well, you can't have both of those at once. Right? One or the other has got to be true. And uh, if, you, uh, if you say the latter, then you're giving up on science altogether. Right? You're turning science into a kind of game or maybe a kind of uh, early version of engineering, but nothing to do with truth. And if you take the first path, then you have to ask, wow, how is it that we're able to understand nature at all? Right? Even if we can never completely understand it, how do we understand it at all? What, what made that possible? And that points us very quickly, I think, to, to God as the underlying reason of the universe who has commissioned us to understand it. So that's, that's my response to that. Now, um, causation. Um, I think that if you give up on causation, again, you give up on science. Um, if, if, if uncaused things could just happen willy-nilly, then we'd have to take seriously that all of our experimental data is, is popped into existence like your uncaused elephant, right? Without any kind of precursor. And that would really destroy the foundations of science itself. Yeah, so uh, as you saw, I mean, I'm going to ar obviously argue that when things happen in a quantum vacuum, that's not an uncaused event. Uh, quite the contrary, um, the quantum field itself is pregnant with potentialities. Uh, which it causes to come into being in certain cases. Now, you raised an interesting, interesting point about the measurement problem, which uh, I've worked on actually quite a bit recently, and that would be a whole other lecture. <laughs> uh, but I think the best solution to the measurement problem is to suppose that, um, that quantum, the quantum world is only one aspect of a much larger and richer world, uh, including us and our scientific instruments. And in order to do these scientific experiments in, quantum, in the quantum realm, we have to assume that our instruments have causal powers and liabilities, that they're going to respond to the quantum phenomena in certain ways and not in other ways. And that, again, is all a presupposition of quantum, quantum research uh, at a very fundamental level. Uh, you should look at the work, recent work by George Ellis, uh, one great uh, quantum cosmologist, uh, cosmologist in general, but, uh, and, and his... Uh, uh, um, collaborator Barbara Drossel done a lot of good work on, on that measurement problem sort of problem. Um, so, uh, so time, so time itself, uh, human centric, uh, it would disappear if we were in a bus traveling the speed of light. 
Well, I don't think that's actually possible to make a bicycle trail in the speed of light. And in fact, um, even in general relativity, it's not the case that light, uh, that time disappears. It's still quite distinct from the other, the other uh, spatial dimensions. And again, in order to do, in order to do any kind of scientific investigation, you have to believe that time is real and has a direction, or else you couldn't trust your, your reports and records of past research, of past experiments. Um, they would be as unreliable as a, as, a, as a fortune teller is telling you something about the future, right? Uh, I, have to, I have to believe that there's a causal direction to time in order to do science in the first place. So time is very important. Uh, anthropic coincidences, real quickly, um, could some other form of life have formed? Quite probably, yes. There may, other, may well be other forms of life. That actually just strengthens the argument for God, in fact, if that's the case, because that takes away what's sometimes called the observer selection effect. Uh, it may well be that many forms of life could exist without fine-tuning, but we're not one of them. We exist only under extremely fine-tuned conditions. And so that requires an explanation. What, what is it that fine-tuned the world for carbon-based planetary life, basically? Uh, which is a, um, a very interesting fact in which I think most physicists would agree has to be explained either by God or by what's called the multiverse, which we'll get into later. Uh, there's, a, there's a recent book by, um, let's see, what the, what the names again, um, Wilson and Barnes uh, on, on this fine tuning. And Wilson's an atheist, Barnes is a theist. Uh, they make a very strong case for saying it's got to be either God or the multiverse, that you can't, uh, you can't explain the fine-tuning way in any other sort of way. Um, okay, so yeah, going to my elephant. So, so if an elephant appeared uncaused, that, as you say, that would be absurd, right? But why then is a universe that appears uncaused not also absurd? A universe is just a very, very big elephant. <laughs> there's, not, there's not an intrinsic difference between the two. And so I think if one is absurd, the other one has to be absurd as well. Um, and let's see, there was one other thought I was going to throw in there, um, but maybe that's good enough for now. Um, you know, the, the, the point of the argument is not just that there are uncaused things, but that the uncaused things are uncausable and therefore godlike, therefore uh, infinite in nature. Okay, well, anyway, that's, that's probably enough on that one. Maybe we should move on. I also had multiple questions, but it's okay. <laughs> you didn't get the answer. I'm asking. Yeah. Um, so I guess my the second, I guess, question or possible objection that I had written down um, was that a lot of arguments for um, like cosmological fine tuning or intelligent design esque arguments they seem to have this issue of, and I think you touched on it a couple of times during your back and forth just now, um, that like because we're unfamiliar with the conditions of what creates a universe and like whether there can be multiple universes, it could be that we're just putting the, the horse before the carriage. That if the particular conditions of the universe were not what they are, then we wouldn't even be here to look around and marvel at them. So if it wasn't this way, then we couldn't even observe it to make any kind of like deductions or claims about it. And so it might just be that things have to be this way for life to exist. Um, and then if we are taking the findings of science, um, like the natural sciences at you know, face value, like believing the conclusions, it would seem odd that if the universe was designed in such a way that if humanity, like even you know, agricultural revolution, like humanity, like even before that, just the first humans um, came into existence maybe 200,000 years ago, 
it would seem odd that the universe was designed in this extremely intricate way just for human species as we know them now to exist in a very, very recent, you know, context if we're saying the universe is 13 and a half billion years old. Um, it seems like a lot of time just to get to where we are now. I think you also made a comment about the the nature of carbon-based life, and it's kind of the same, you know, objection, yeah. that because we're unfamiliar with alien life, we don't know how many different ways life could arise in the universe. So, like, there could be silicon-based life, there could be nitrogen-based life. So, because we don't have other life or other universes to compare to, we just don't know how abundant or difficult it is for those things to begin or arise or look the way that they do. Right. Okay, great. So, um, yeah, so it'll take me some time to deal with all those, um, but they're all, they're all fairly familiar objections. Um, so first of all, um, I think we have to make a distinction between two ways of thinking about anthropic, the anthropic principle, right? So that's what you were appealing to there at the beginning. That is, look, um, things had to be this way for us to be here. So we wouldn't even be asking the question if things weren't that way. So there's nothing to explain. Move on. Right? That, that's the sort of anthropic idea. Now, there's two versions of that. There's the one world and the many world version. Right? So the one world says, this is the only world there is, the only universe there is. Um, it turned out to be just this way for whatever reason. Here we are. It had to be that way for us to be here. So there's no, nothing to explain. I think the consensus among people who work in this area is that that's fallacious. That doesn't make any sense. So let me give you the analogy. Allergy. Uh, suppose that I'm condemned to death by a firing squad and there's 30 sharpshooters who are going to shoot me at point blank range. Okay. And we have the date, they arrive, they shoot, they miss me, it goes right around me, not, not a single bullet hits me. Do I say, ah, well, if they hadn't missed me, I wouldn't be here to ask the question, so there's nothing to explain. Let's move on. No, I say, wow, that's amazing. Why did they miss me? It must be a conspiracy or something, right, to explain how I managed to survive. Exactly the same kind of reasoning would apply, I think, in this case. We're here. That's amazing that we're here. <laughs> There's something that needs to be explained. Now, if you have a multiverse, it's a different matter. If you can say, look, there's an infinite or a huge number of universes out there, and somehow they vary in, in one way or another, then, of course, at least one universe will produce at least one form of life that's conscious. And then where else would we be? We're conscious. So we're going to be in one of those universes that's sort of fine-tuned for conscious life. And so it would eliminate the, uh, eliminate the, the uh, plausi implausibility. So that, I think, is, is where most atheists are going these days, actually, with the multiverse. But first of all, just notice how things have changed. Before this, before fine-tuning came along, it was the theists who had to say, let's postulate some unobserved being who created the universe. And all the skeptics said, oh, come on, let's just stick with what we know. Now, the theists are saying, let's postulate an infinite being created the universe, and the atheists are saying, let's postulate a huge number of unobserved universes out there that vary randomly and so on. So at the very least, uh, the playing field is leveled tremendously uh, as a result of these, of these uh, discoveries. Now, there's also a bunch of reasons for thinking that the multiverse is not a good explanation, not a good ultimate explanation. Um, you can be both. You can believe in God and a multiverse, actually, and that's quite a plausible position, actually. Uh, it turns out that all the models of the multiverse that people have produced also had to be fine-tuned. You have to fine-tune the parameters in order to get the multiverse to happen in the first place. It's actually one move. I mean, there's, there's about a dozen moves I could make here by a time, but there are lots of potential problems with the multiverse, including skepticism. It leads very quickly to uh, the Boltzmann brain problem uh, and, and empirical skepticism. So, so anyway, that, that, that's, that's how I would respond to that set of objections. Uh, briefly. 
Um, now, what about other forms of life, other possible forms of life? Well, as I said, uh, to, I think it was, uh, uh, it was Dio or Tericho a minute ago, uh, the possibility of other forms of life actually strengthens the argument for fine tuning. Because um, yes, if it's really, really easy for other forms of life to form without fine tuning, then why aren't we them? <laughs> we should be one of them. The vast majority of observers in a random universe would be in a broadly tuned form of life, one that's easy to get. And yet we're in this really, really strange form of life that, that the universe has to be extremely fine tuned in order to make. That's amazing, right? Uh, it's as if God loves carbon formed life for some reason or something. We need some explanation, right? And so the possibility of other forms of life actually strengthens the argument, doesn't weaken it, in fact. Um, yeah, and then the last objection, this is a very common objection. People often put it in spatial terms. If God loves life so much, why is there so much vacuum in space? <laughs> why is life just crawling around the surface of this little planet? Why isn't the whole cosmos just packed full of a jungle of life? And you, you, you give the temple version of this. Why isn't life showing up at the Big Bang and lasting forever, all kinds of conscious life and whatnot? Um, well, I think this is, this is a case of looking at things in a very anthropocentric way, right? Um, God is able to produce space and time very easily. So God does not look at space and time the way we do, right? Uh, you know, I've got a house which has only a limited amount of space, and so I gotta, I gotta figure out how to cram all my stuff into it in a way that works. God can produce as much space as he wants, as much time as he wants, it's easy. It's like zero cost for God. And so for God to make a universe that's really, really big and really, really old, uh, and, and the thing that he cares most about is this little tiny planet for a few thousand years, it makes perfect sense because he can get all that space and time for free. It's cost-free for him. And so I'm not really impressed by those kind of objections at all, to be honest. Okay. Does this sound like, um, do you feel like there might be an issue here of like unfalsifiability? Because if there's very little life, if there's just life here on Earth, then well, isn't that special and unique? But if we found like a large amount of life throughout the universe, then it's like, oh, well, that's because the universe was designed in such a way as to allow there to be large amounts of life throughout the universe. So it's like, you kind of get to say that the universe is fine-tuned no matter what we find within the universe. No, I don't, don't think that works. Because the fine tuning is for there to be life at all, right? And uh, so yeah, the, I think the conclusion we can reach from this is that God likes life, but he doesn't really care about the average density of life, so to speak. He doesn't care about filling up empty space with life. But he definitely must like life because he time tuned the universe to make life possible at all. But I don't think it's, I, don't think it's a, I think it's very much falsifiable. Right. Uh, this, this line of argument is very much falsifiable. It, if, it, if it turned out that all these arguments are wrong and it turns out that you can get carbon and stars really easily, and there's a few people who argued this recently, but I think the evidence is overwhelming against them, uh, that would falsify for sure. You know, we'd have to, you know, we, we lose that argument anyway. All right. Um, so Dr. Kuhn's several questions ago, you um, started talking about, you know, how divine simplicity, I, I you know, could help solve some of these like uh, issues cosmologically. Now, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Planiga's argument against divine simplicity. Oh, yeah. um, okay, that's that's perfect. <laughs> that's what my question's about. Um, because yeah. to me, it, I mean, it makes sense. I'm not at all like saying, oh no, because God's this disparate set of parts. No, 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 that's not the case. But at least in the Thomistic notion of simplicity, it does seem kind of troubled to me. So I was wondering yeah. if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, right. So, so here, I mean, uh, a really, really, really strong doctrine of simplicity, which is what you get from Aquinas, and which I would also defend, says not only does God have many parts in the, in the ordinary sense, 
and he doesn't have any parts in the metaphysical sense. So he doesn't even have a nature the way you and I do. We have human nature. God doesn't have a divine nature. He is the divine nature, right? And likewise, he doesn't have existence like you and I do. He is his existence. And so Plantinga's point is, well, look, this makes God into a property or a, a, you know, a thing that things have, like a nature, or it makes him into a fact, like the fact that he exists. And properties and facts are not people, <laughs> but God is a person, right? Therefore, he can't be a property, he can't be a fact. That's the argument, basically. And, I mean, uh, he goes into some more detail, but essentially that's the whole argument in, in Does God Have a Nature? Just, just right that, there. And I mean, it's a fair enough objection, right? Um, my response is to say, yeah, I mean, uh, other things being equal, those are pretty reasonable arguments, but we're dealing with God, right? <laughs> we're dealing with a being that is literally off the chart. Uh, ontologically speaking. And so we have to be really careful about applying to God things that seem sensible to us from other contexts. So in the natural world, in the finite created world, things, there are things that have properties and there are properties and not, they don't overlap, right? There, there are facts and there are things involved in facts and those aren't, aren't the same. Uh, but to generalize that to God is really uh, questionable in my mind. Uh, I mean, given that God has is, is got to be, if we're going to avoid the special pleading kind of objection, right, we're going we're gonna to say that here's a reason why God is, doesn't need to be a cause, because he's absolutely uncausable. And why is he uncausable? Because he doesn't have existence. He is his existence. He doesn't have a nature. He is his nature. That's why he's uncausable, right? Um, and the cosmological argument itself sort of pushes you towards thinking that God is going to be an exceptional being, very exceptional being. And so, and so we have to be very cautious about applying these, these, these general principles to God. And of course, planning is not that impressed with the cosmological style of argument, right? And so I think that's where it, where it sort of where it comes down to. If you think the cosmological style argument is really important, like I do, you're going to tend to want to embrace a pretty strong doctrine of divine simplicity. If you don't, yeah, then, I think Planning's argument makes some sense. You know, yeah, let's make God more like us. Uh, you know, the, the worry is that you, you get, you're getting, you're tending towards a kind of anthropomorphism, right? On um, Planning's picture, where God is just like us, only more so, right? Like really big and smart and, and powerful. And, uh, you know, that I just find, even apart from the philosophical argumentation, it's a theologically somewhat worrying as well. Um, makes God a bit too comprehensible, you might say, uh, which other, in other contexts is a good thing, but in this particular case, maybe we, we want to tread cautiously. So, yeah. Well, actually, if there's no other questions, I, I'll have another one. Um, it's also, okay, uh, and so this one has to do um, more with his evolutionary argument against naturalism. Um, and I'm, I'm just not as familiar with the literature of one, one day when I have the time, I'll definitely go through it. Because, well, I know that that argument was met very, with lots of hostility. And that is from what people have kind of just said, like that's the thing that so many people, like a lot of things that Plenty goes done, people have been like, all right, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Sure, you know, fine, you can do that. But with this, that was not from what I kind of heard and that it was very much people got, which is fair because it, it's, if, you, if it works, it's devastating. Um, exactly. And so I was wondering if there's actually like any good objections that you're aware of like, to the argument or if it's really just comes down to the fact that people just don't want to believe it. Yeah, I mean, well, a little of both, but I think, 
I mean, I think the fact that so many atheists really, really hate the argument is an interesting fact. <laughs> it suggests that we should look at the argument really carefully. And the other thing that I noticed is, for instance, if you, if you read the volume on, on uh, uh, of criticisms of planning, uh, it's called Naturalism uh, Defeated or something like that with the question mark, um, you'll find that there are roughly 30 different refutations of the argument. Now, um, his, if you look at history of philosophy, no philosophy has ever been refuted. No good philosophical argument has ever been refuted 30 times, right? There's always going to be one refutation that everybody says, okay, that's it. That's the one that refutes the argument. There's no consensus among atheists about what the ref which reputation is the decisive one. And that is also very significant, I think. Um, and so I look at all the refutation, I think, no, 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 no. I just don't find any of them particularly persuasive. Um, now, the probably the most persuasive argument, I think, rebuttal to the I mean, there, so, so let's put it this way. There's at least two versions of the argument. There's a very broad argument that says we couldn't have any knowledge at all if evolution were the only cause, right? No, no God. And then there's more focused versions of the argument, like we couldn't have scientific knowledge, we couldn't have philosophical knowledge, we couldn't have moral knowledge, and so on. And I think the second kind of argument is somewhat, somewhat stronger. So I've got a chapter in the book, um, two dozen arguments or so, uh, about God, and uh, I, I talk about the more focused argument, the argument from intuitive knowledge, which I, which I include mathematics, philosophy, morality, basically. And there I think the argument's quite strong, actually. Uh, I think the argument, even the more general argument, is pretty strong, but the, most, the best objection to that argument, I think, would be one that says that, um, that the causal, that the environment and the causes of our beliefs provide or, or uh, explain the content that those beliefs have. So, um, so, so for instance, um, you know, I'll give you the classic planning example, right? Uh, I see a tiger and I run away from the tiger, right? Now, one possible explanation is I believe there's a tiger there and I think that the best way to get away from the tiger is to run away from it and I wanna get away from the tiger. <laughs> so that's a possible explanation. Here's another possible explanation. I think the tiger is there. I believe the best way to get away from the tiger, the best way to get to the tiger is to run the other way. That's the best way to be eaten by him. And I want to be eaten by him, right? That also explains the behavior. And evolution would say, we don't care, right? As long as you get away from the tiger, we don't care what you believe or what you're desiring, right? Now the best rebuttal I think is to say, no, no, look, if I see the tiger there, the very fact that I'm seeing a tiger, that somehow guarantees that my belief is going to be that the tiger is there and it's going to guarantee and the very fact that i'm built a certain way will guarantee that i believe that the best way to get away from the tiger is to run away from him and, and vice versa so so there'll be certain facts about the local causal situation that that guarantee that my content has a certain that my beliefs have a certain content and then once you get that, then natural selection can say, and you want to have true contents there because that will contribute to your survival. So that's the best kind of story. But I think that won't work for mathematical beliefs, philosophical beliefs, highly theoretical scientific beliefs, because again, natural selection couldn't care less whether we're good at inferring, you know, the best theory of quantum mechanics. Couldn't care less, right? I mean, as long as I'm good at getting away from wild animals and finding food, that's fine, right? Uh, and uh, the rest of it's just completely irrelevant. So, uh, so there's, no, there's no naturalistic explanation, I think, for our aptitude for truth in these other more theoretical fields, including philosophy itself.